Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. I want to make sure you know, too, if you don't have a Bible, we have provided Bibles for you uh, at the middle of each aisle. They're kind of on the floor under the chair. Somebody would be happy to pass one down to you. Um, Please take that. Take it with you if you want. It could be yours. We'd love for you to have it. Um, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, This is one of the few times in 1 Corinthians where you could be accused of picking the passage because of how beautiful it is, you know? It seems like every, every, every other week I'm up here saying, you know, the reason we're talking about this passage today is that we are in 1 Corinthians and we just take what comes next. So that's why we're talking about the guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. Or that's why we're talking about why Christians shouldn't take each other to court. Or that's why we're talking about eating meat in temples, sacrifice to idols, and uh, we submit to the word and we just take what's next. Today, we come to one that you know, people always want to talk about. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most beautiful passages in all the scripture. I'd wager one of the most beautiful in all of, of, of literature anywhere. And for that reason, it's, it's a really intimidating thing to have to preach on 1 Corinthians 13. Let me just tell you right now. It's got to be something like what an actor would feel, you know, playing Hamlet, finally playing Hamlet, you know, or, uh, or, or what a cellist might feel finally playing or performing the first cellist, box first cello suite, something like that. I don't know, fill in your own... Fill in that blank with whatever, with whatever works for you, but those are what I've been thinking of. And, it's, and that, for that reason, it's been a great opportunity for me to, to reflect and pray through the power, my trust in the power of God's Word. You know, that, this is one of the times where it's so wonderfully liberating to say, you really can't mess it up. Our, our, our goal here is to understand it on its terms, not to be worthy of it. There is no being worthy of it. What we want to do is hear from it. And so that's what we're going to do together. We're going to talk about this passage about love and try to put it into the context in which it was written to try to take it from the isolation that most of us encounter it in normally, put it back into what, the, what Paul meant for it, for the community that he was writing to, and then take it from that community and its purpose there and plant it in the middle of our community with all of our flaws, with all of our failures and weaknesses to see how we can love each other in the way that, that this passage describes for us. That's our goal today. I want to begin by reading it, so please stand with me now in honor of God's Word as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read the entire chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then 
face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to unpack this in three steps. They follow the three steps that the passage takes. I don't know if you noticed this when you're reading it, but there are really three different sections. The first three verses are the first one. Then verses four to seven are the really poetic, it's the really poetic section, the love is, love is not section. And then verses eight through 13 talk about love and its relationship to the other gifts and to what's coming, the future. So I'm going to take each of these paragraphs and unpack this more excellent way that Paul introduces at the end of chapter 12. It's, it's going to be these three steps. And this suggests that we are defined by love as Christians. We're defined by love. That we're bound by love as a community. And that we're destined for love. Basically, heaven is a world of love. Defined by love, bound by love, and destined for love. That's what I want to focus this morning. Starting with the first three verses. The opening verses here, I, mean, I, I, I actually should step back and say too, if you guys were on the retreat uh, last week, you're about to hear a lot of the same stuff. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, you can go help out in child care if you want to. You're going to hear a lot of the same stuff. If you weren't on the retreat, um, you should have been. It was awesome. <laughs> next year, next year, you should, we'll plan on having you. Uh, the retreat was a good test run for a lot of what's coming today. We'll put it that way. Beginning with the first three verses, where we started uh, in our time together last weekend, they're kind of comparison, sort of. It's a sort of comparison, but not exactly. So it, Paul takes up these gifts that the Corinthians are really proud of. They, they seem to be really taken up with whether or not they had the ability to speak in tongues. We're going to talk a lot about what that means next week. We're going to sort of bracket that out of today. And talk about it when he, when he really talks about it in chapter 14. They were really thought that, that they had tapped into a special source of knowledge. That was another thing they had. And they were, they were really into, into uh, the, the different ways in which the Spirit had brought the future into the reality of the present. And showed up in their lives. But what was missing was the way they treated each other. So Paul's continuing what he's been doing throughout the whole letter, which is trying to call them out for their self-centeredness. And here he's, he's pointing to these things that are good, that come from the Spirit. And what he's doing is he's, is, is he's trying to take off the table what they were interested in, which is sort of ranking them. They wanted to say, okay, so I've got tongues. That puts me just ahead of people who have knowledge. And, and then maybe below them is people who do good things for the poor. Um, and then, I don't know, you fill in the rest of the gaps. They were interested in ranking. Paul wants to get rid of ranking. What he's doing here, the only comparison he's doing is saying that, that you might have this thing over here, like knowledge or tongues or whatever, but if you don't have love, it's useless to you. So I don't, There's not a perfect analogy for this, but it's sort of like somebody trying to, to, to rank order the different wind instruments, but missing the point that without the wind and the skill of the, of the fingers, of the human user, the instruments themselves are useless, Right? So it's, I mean, I guess you could compare the, the glories of the trombone to the oboe to the flute, if you want. Some of you may have passionate ideas about how those rank. I don't know. If you do, well, I'm just going to leave that alone. But surely you have to understand that those instruments themselves are just dormant. They're useless. They're, at best, ornamentation. 
without, without wind and the skill to play them. What Paul is saying is that these gifts themselves are kind of like wind instruments. Like, they're, they're fine. But ranking them is just, a, you're spinning your wheels. You're missing the point. If you don't realize that without love, they're nothing. And love is exactly what they're missing. To take it a little bit closer to our day, the things that he's mentioning, tongues, prophetic powers, understanding mysteries, having knowledge, a faith that can move mountains, service to the poor. It's amazing how timeless these particular things are as aspects of Christianity that people latch onto and attempt to use to define Christianity, right? A lot of times you have even different Christian communities or denominations or branches of the church that are sort of gathered around one or more of these kinds of gifts or tendencies. And that the, the claim is that this is what, this is the essence of Christianity. If you don't have tongues or prophetic powers, if you don't have knowledge like we have or service like we have, you don't have Christianity. And Paul is throwing that out. Some Christians gravitate towards power. Power is what defines Christianity. Power that shows up maybe in the ability to speak in tongues or the ability to do exorcisms. I remember, I mentioned this at the retreat, I, I remember vividly a couple of trips to India that I've taken that, that on both of those occasions, my, my impression of, of the Christians that I was around, what, what stuck out to me there is very jarring difference from like the, com- the most common uh, Christian tendencies in America was that they were really, really into Jesus as a source of power. And that one of the ways they cast themselves as different from their Hindu neighbors is that Jesus has the power to do things that these Hindu gods can't do. That some of the most effective evangelism they were doing is as telling people about Jesus as a power that they could tap into with their life. I think maybe some of this is even in in prosperity gospel teaching in America. If it shows up in America, that's probably where it shows up most clearly. I don't know how familiar you guys are with this whole branch. They're on TV a lot. The idea is that if you have the right amount of faith, if you know how to tap into it, then, then God is a power at your disposal to give you the life that you want, right? The life that you've imagined for yourself. Christianity is about power. And certainly Christianity is about power. Apart from Jesus' resurrection... His power over the grave, we're all still stuck here, waiting to die. And without power, we're hopeless. But power is not enough. Other Christians gravitate towards knowledge. You know? We we know the truth. Through the scriptures, we understand the way the world works in a way that others who don't have the scriptures don't understand. That would be the claim. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? We have the gospel. We have theological precision, maybe, that others don't have and that they should have. The essence of Christianity, what defines us as Christians, is that we know the right things. And of course, that is central to Christianity. Christianity is not something you can separate from claims about who Jesus is and what he did and what it takes to connect to him. There are right and wrong answers to those questions. And getting the right answers is is non-negotiable. But knowledge is not enough. For others, it's service. It's putting your life on the line for other people. It's giving away what you have. Paul says maybe you could even give away everything you have. Maybe even give your own body. Now, that's radical, right? You want to talk about radical Christianity? It seems like there's always, especially in America, there's always going to be a, a division in, in Christianity that is sort of casting itself against the middle, against those who are sort of selling out to the culture's narratives. 
the, that are giving themselves over to the American dream, to stuff and uh, just accumulation and consumption. And there is, a, there is a central place for Jesus' radical commands to take up your cross and die. And that if we're not giving ourselves away to the poor, to those in need, if we're not putting our lives on the line for the spread of the gospel, then we're living as if the new world was already here when it is clearly not. And we're meant to live for it, not for this world. But you could give away everything you have and you could even be killed for the gospel. And if you don't have love, you've got nothing. That's what Paul says. See, the problem with these good things, these essential marks of Christianity, is that without love, they, they, they're really more about us than they are about God or about others. Because each of these things that we might identify with can ultimately be a thing that we use to establish our superiority to other people who aren't as advanced in these areas as we are. So I wonder, friends, I wonder if you spent some time thinking honestly to yourself about whether you ever are guilty of comparing yourself to other people, to other Christians in particular. I think all of us would have to say that we are. I wonder that we're guilty of that. I, I, I wonder for you, when you catch yourself comparing yourself to other Christians, what is it that you use? Do you, do you find yourself believing that they should be more like you, that the church would be more faithful in the world, a more decent place, if they just had your knowledge? If people had just read what I read, if they could just get this, if they weren't so ignorant, then... Or do you find your, your choices in your life, the way you choose to spend your money, to spend your free time, to volunteer or not to volunteer, and look at others and say, if they would just do more of what I do, the church would be so much more healthy. The world would be so much better place. I, don't let yourself get yourself off the hook because these things that are important to you really are good things. If you've ever caught yourself comparing yourself to other people, and believing that they should be more like you, then what you've found, what you've identified in that moment is that you have elbowed Jesus a little bit further outside of your identity in Christ. That your Christianity is being defined for you by things that aren't at the essence of Christianity, by something other than love, because love is the thing that once you compare yourself to others and wish they were more like you, you've lost love. Like it's the one thing that can never be used for comparison. Because what love looks like when it looks at someone and sees something in their lives that is maybe a, a, a defect, right? Maybe they should know more than they do or they should be doing more than they are to serve. If you're driven by love when you make that judgment, your response is not, oh, they should be more like me or I'm so glad I'm not like them. Your response is, what can I do? to help them learn this thing that I know that they need to know? Or how can I help bring them along in giving their lives to something that they aren't now giving it to? That's what love looks like. Love is the one thing that you can never use to compare yourself to other people. And if where you find yourself comparing, you find yourself identifying with something other than Jesus and what he's done for you. You find yourself in danger, friends. The primary mark of Christians, what defines us is love. 
And this is the one thing that we cannot produce on our own power. It is the one thing that we just can't do. We can't get by willpower. It has to be given to us by Christ. We're defined by love, not by any other gift. We're also bound together by love. I think that this middle section, verses 4 to 7, I think this is the section that, that really Paul is, even though it's the most sort of general in its framing, even almost generic in its language, it's the one where Paul is doing his heaviest lifting for this particular church. It's what they needed and it's what we need too. It's the most famous one. It's a description of love. It's not exactly a definition of love. It's almost like he wouldn't go there. Love is too beautiful, too rich, too, too multi-textured to try to pin it down in a sentence. Let me just tell you what it's like. It's the way of good poets, right? Let me just describe it to you. The description of love in verses 4 to 7 is a far, far cry from sweet and sentimental. This description of love is a description of something a lot more like death than anything else. It's a death to our inner demand to be treated well. It's a death to our demand to be respected, to be catered to. It's a death to our right not to be wronged or impeded or inconvenienced. Now, what I want to do is just walk you through some of the examples, these words that he uses, love is, love is not, give you a sense of what these words mean, and then we're going to come back around to it and try to, try to put the whole in perspective on how this is, this is the only thing, love is the only thing that gives us hope and binds us together as a community. Well, let's walk through the details together. Love is patient and kind. These two go together, verse 4. They're two sides of the same coin, in a sense. They're, they're how we relate to other people. Patience is passive. Kindness is active. Patience is, a, is, in the King James word, that's even better than this one, it's long-suffering. It's to take stuff from people and not resent them for it. Right? It is to be willing to shoulder the burdens that other people put on you. Whether you wanted these burdens or not, it's to take them willingly, to bear them up over the long haul. It's not to give up on people. To, it, it's, it's to be willing to go the long road with them. Kindness is, is the active part. It's seeing loads that other people are carrying and wanting to carry, carry them for them. It's going for them. It's, it's aggressive and intentional. It's assertive. It's a warmth of heart towards the needs of other people. Overall, if you put the two together, patience and kindness, love is, love is the thing that drives you further in to relationships when they're hard. Love is the thing that keeps you from pulling back when the relationships are hard. The next group here is another, is another group of, of similar characteristics that, that love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't puffed up or arrogant, it isn't rude. Here the picture is, is of what love doesn't do. It's sort of a negative description. Love doesn't envy. It's not so much, I wish I had what you had. This kind of envy, this word means more resenting that you have what you have. Well, I may not want it, but I also don't want you to get it. It's, it's seeing someone else succeed and getting that sick feeling in your stomach that they're getting what you wish, what, what, what maybe you wish they, they wouldn't get, that they don't deserve, right? Boasting is sort of a flip side of pride. Boasting is looking at what you have, comparing it to what others have, and looking down on them, being glad that you have what they don't have, seeing yourself as superior to them. 
That comes through in the arrogance as well. Arrogance are being puffed up, feeling yourself more, more uh, important, more significant, more accomplished than other people. Fed even by seeing other people struggle. Paul continues, love doesn't seek its own way. It doesn't insist on its own way. Other translations say doesn't seek its own. Love isn't the kind of thing that encounters every situation asking what's best for me. How am I affected by this? Love isn't the kind of thing that sees what's best and insists on having things that way. Love can, love can settle for something that's less than ideal if, it's, if it will serve the other person. Love isn't irritable. It doesn't, it doesn't get annoyed or bothered easily. It doesn't, it doesn't force those who... Inter- when you love, you don't force those who interact with you to sort of live on thin ice, always wondering when, you're, when they're going to slip up or step in the wrong place and have you pounce. Love creates a, an environment of safety and not fear. Love isn't resentful, he continues. It doesn't keep track of wrongs. It's not that love, notice, it's not that love doesn't, love keeps you from being hurt by other people. It doesn't. What love does, love responds to the hurts that other people inflict on you. And when, when hurt, love lets it go. Love doesn't hold on to it. It doesn't feed it by thoughts. Love doesn't let the wrong suffered, here's, here's the essence of it. Love doesn't let the wrong that you've suffered define the person who did you that wrong. Love doesn't sum that person up as basically what they've done to you. Love doesn't reduce another person as if they're fully, as if they're fully captured by these actions they've done. Love says, I may have been hurt by you, but that is not who you are to me the kind of love Jesus shows to us, isn't it? Not a love that isn't hurt. It's a love that absorbs pain and redefines relationships. Love doesn't rejoice at wrong. It doesn't rejoice in evil and injustice, but with the truth. How many of us have have known what it is to be in a circumstance where we know this conversation is going to a bad place and we should pull ourselves out? But we want approval. We want to be on the inside. We want to be liked and affirmed. And so, even though it's wrongdoing, we may endorse it, affirm it, join into it, rejoice in it. Love doesn't go there. Love only rejoices in the truth. Love only rejoices in good and beauty. Finally, love puts up with anything Love bears all things and still comes out expecting the best of the one who calls the struggle. That's, that's, that's my take on verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. These are relational qualities. It's not a generic kind of hope. Love believes the best about the person you're in relationship with. Love hopes for the best from that person. When love experiences something that seems a little bit off, love, love drives you not to assume you, know, you see all the pieces at work here. Not to, not to assume you've got this person figured out. But maybe there are circumstances behind it that, that led to them treating you the way they are. Maybe, maybe you just misunderstand them. Love believes and hopes all things. And when necessary, love endures. When you did mean what you said, love takes it. Love endures it. 
Now, there's so much more we can say about these characteristics. What I want to do is make sure you get the point of the whole. Because what Paul is going for here, what he's, what he is, what he's describing has a model. This love has a model. Paul is not an abstract artist when he paints this picture for us. Just sort of sitting in his room thinking about how to create shapes that will vaguely evoke certain things in you. No, no he's, he's an old school realist artist. He's the guy who sits in a chair in front of an easel and a canvas in a beautiful countryside and he paints what he sees. And this artist and his easel and his canvas are facing the history of God's relationship to his people. And Paul is saying, yeah, love looks like that. Yet this is what love is. He looks at his history of dealing with Israel and says, yeah, love is steadfast. Love doesn't remember wrongs. Think of Isaiah's promise to forget the iniquities of his people. Love, love bears all things. Paul thinks of the cross and he says, yeah, love bears all things. You know, God isn't mentioned here, neither is Christ. But we know enough from this letter that every time Paul argues about anything, what he's talking about, what he's going to, at the bottom root of it, to justify what he's going to say, is Jesus and what Jesus has done. So when he describes love, we'd be crazy not to assume that he's describing something he knows because he's seen it played out in the history of Israel and ultimately in the cross of Jesus. When this artist paints this picture, he's telling us that love is defined by God and his love for us. So he's doing what he does in all of his letters which is tell us what Jesus has done for us and then say, go love each other like that. All of his letters make that move. Paul's making it here. He's presenting God's love to us as our model for the way we should love each other. We love to glorify God, to celebrate and clarify what his love is like. And we love to give to others what we have been given in Christ. We love not so we get praised for it, credit for it, or good reputation by it, but we love for the pure and the lasting joy that is ours when we are what we are made to be through Christ. And Paul aims this portrait, this portrait that is, that is inspired by God and his love for us and applied here to the way that we should relate to each other. Paul aims it at a very particular community. It's aimed not at the Hallmark card selection, at the wedding ceremony where you may have heard it read, but it is aimed at a thoroughly dysfunctional, unhealthy, on the brink of collapse church community. Remember what we have covered in 1 Corinthians. Think about these people. Think about what they were guilty of. Think of their bragging about who they followed, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Think about the way they treated each other, taking each other even to court over their offenses. This is a community in which people threw their rights around, even when it meant trampling on someone else. Would they be willing to see someone else go into idolatry just so they could have the meat dinner that they wanted in the temple? This is the community that when they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they did it in a way that, that clarified their status, their, their, their power, their wealth, rather than minimizing it. They did it in a way that humiliated the poor. And Paul says, these are the people. These are the people that you're to love. Love is patient with them. It's kind towards them. 
Love keeps no records of wrong even when these people have humiliated you. Love bears all things and endures all things, even continues to believe and hope the best in all things for these people in this dysfunctional community. That's where love shows itself most clearly. And that means it's, it's, it shows up here among us in our community for all of our flaws, for all of the ideals that we talk about and fail to realize. Love is meant for us to keep us together, to bind us despite what we are on our own. And when we love each other like this, even when it's hard, even when no one deserves it, even when the the ideals aren't realized, when we love each other like this, we give people a taste of what's coming. Paul's last point, verses 8 to 13, is that we are destined for love. What he's doing in these verses is he's going back to those same gifts, knowledge, prophecies, tongues, things we're going to take up again in chapter 14. And he's saying, love never ends, but these gifts are going away. These things that the Corinthians probably thought were the signs that they belonged to another world, the signs that that world had broken into this one. Look at the tongues we speak in. Look at these prophecies that we do, these healings. We are, we are citizens of this coming world. They looked at those things as the markers of what's to come. And Paul says, no, you got it all wrong. Those things are going away. They're training wheels. They're pull-up diapers. You can tell what's going on in my household right now. They're pull-up diapers. They belong to a different era. They belong to an era in which things are incomplete, in which we don't see in the way we mean to, in which Paul says we see as in a mirror dimly, and we do things like children. I think if Paul had had the, uh, the use of photographic technology, he would have used a photo instead of a mirror. Because I don't think his point is that... I mean, a mirror, you're actually seeing a a reflection of the thing. It's kind of a one-to-one. But the point here is that we see through mediaries. We don't see it directly or clearly. We see it through something else. And therefore, it's partial. It's incomplete. It's a lot more like a photograph. You know, when you see a photograph of a landscape, for example, it's just, it's framed for you. You're not seeing the whole. And even what you see is very small. There's no way to see the beauty of a western landscape on a four by six or whatever the size is, right? It's just very small. It's mediated. It gives you a sense of it, but it, it, isn't, it isn't the real thing. Or who among us would, would want to look at a picture of someone that we love when we could actually see them? Use the picture because they're in a distant city or something and you haven't seen them in a long time. That's why you need a picture. But when they're with you, the, the picture doesn't matter. And, and that's what he's saying is, is, is happening here with tongues, with prophecies, with gifts of healing and whatever. These things are the, they're the temporary measures that God has given us to get us to the world that he's building for us. But love, oh no, love is different. Love belongs to that world. Love defines that world that's coming. And love has broken into our world because God has decided to show it to us. And when we love each other well, what we do is give each other a taste of that world that will be defined by love. That world, in that world, we love each other free from any sense of manipulation or exploitation, from any narrow and self-serving purposes. In that world, we don't love each other for what we get from each other. In that world, we don't love each other tinged by the disappointments of this life, by the suffering that we share together, suffering that makes our love sweeter, 
but also sorrowful. And that love will know nothing but joy with and for each other and never sorrow. In that love, there will be no jealousy, no envy, no manipulation, no misunderstanding. In that world, love will always be returned. It will never be one-sided and it will never be in doubt. And that is the world we are destined for. So our calling now, our calling now to show that we belong to that world is to love each other with that sort of love. The sort of love that's only possible when Jesus gives us the power to do it. That's only understandable and tasteable when we look to him and see how he's loved us first. The Corinthians thought it was their gifts and their powers that brought heaven to earth and they were wrong. What brings heaven to earth is our love. Now I want to finish up with a quote that ties this chapter together really well. It's a quote from the same book I quoted last week, a book called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love by Jonathan Lehman. Here's what Lehman writes. People often complain about the sinners they find in the local church, and with good reason. It's filled with sinners. That's why Paul calls Christians to love one another by bearing all things and believing all things and hoping all things and enduring all things. If you won't love such backstabbers and defrauders like this, don't talk about your spiritual gifts, about your vast biblical knowledge or all the things you do for the poor. You're just a noisy gong. Don't talk about your love for all Christians everywhere. You're just a clanging symbol. But if you do practice loving a specific, concrete people, all of whose names you don't get to choose, then you will participate in defining love for the world. The love which will characterize the church on the last day perfectly because it images the self-sacrificing and merciful love of Christ perfectly. Friends, that is the love we're called to. That's what we get to practice together. But only if Jesus gives us power. And so we pray together. Father, your love is our only hope in this life and the next. And it's our only hope for the community that we want to see in our church. And so we pray to you by the power of your spirit to help us to taste the way that you've loved us in Christ, to stir up our affection for each other based on how you've loved us and to define for the world that watches us a little bit of what heaven is like. Come quickly, Jesus. Give us to know of that world directly and not in part. But until you come, help us to love each other with a heavenly love. For your name's sake, amen.